Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. One thing most of you probably don't know is that I actually write all the music on this podcast. I compose it. I sometimes use loops that other people have made, but I I put it all together. And occasionally there are tracks that I have co-written with friends of mine. Uh, It's just a way to kind of not have to bother other people for their music. And and since that's actually my day job, I write music for advertisements. That's That's how I pay the bills for the most part. If you happen to be in advertising... You can visit dancoke.net, that's K-O-C-H, and hear what I have written. But most of you can, of course, ignore that. I thought, I think maybe I should write a specific piece of music for today's episode. I hope you'll forgive, you know, being a little bit uh, cavalier with such a heavy subject, but I couldn't resist. So uh, here at the beginning and then at the end of the episode, we'll, we'll play it in its entirety is Myron's entrance theme music for our topic today. All right, we have the great Myron Penner with us again philosopher at Trinity Western University up in BC, Canada. And Myron, 
you got your own intro music, basically, <laughs> which I sent to you just before we started here. My my head still hurts from me banging it because it is such head banging music. Yeah, you got to be careful if you're out of <laughs> uh, if you're out of practice. But we we're not going to be too silly today. I, I don't want to give the impression that this conversation is going to be making fun of people who believe in demons or anything like that. As we will hear, it is a very complicated topic, and it's difficult to know what the limits of our knowledge could or should or might be around uh, a subject like this. So, But we are representing today your view, which is basically a, a demon skeptical view, not a complete ruling out, but a hefty dose of skepticism. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty fair summary. I think part of it, too, is, you know, as a philosopher, for me, just the basic kind of philosopher's question is, hmm, why should we think that that's true? For any kind of thing that's being claimed about the world, it's not necessarily that we doubt everything that's presented to us, but uh, it's kind of a habit of mind to just, you know, take a step back and to try and be reflective and ask ourselves, okay, that, that might be true. Why should we think that it's true? And can we kind of engage reasons and reflection on our experience? And I find myself kind of having that disposition whenever encountering people who are talking about supernatural agency, divine action, talking about the the great things that God has been doing and is doing, uh, not that there's uh, anything wrong with that. It's just, for me, the first kind of response is to say, well, um, okay, you know, why, why should we think that that's true? You know, where do we put God and, you know, spiritual, supernatural kind of agents in the causal chain that's explaining the experiences of people people have? Yeah. So here is a table of contents of the three things that you're going to talk about that I'm going to interview you about, your three okay. claims. All right. You are not ruling them out metaphysically, so not saying they definitely don't exist, Right. but you are quite skeptical epistemologically, meaning skeptical about what we could possibly know about them. And then lastly, you are somewhat opposed morally, I would guess, because of the way they tend to be used in the real world. So that's a table of contents, but I have two things to get through before we get to those three main points. All right. The first is, I think that Richard Beck, a uh, psychologist whose work I really love. Yeah, Experimental Theology. Experimental Theology, his, his very good blog. So he sets up kind of a global picture here. He says, right. look, there tend to be two camps of Christians, and I think we're going to try and kind of thread the needle in between these two. Right. On the one hand, you've got super skeptics who are embarrassed by all the demon and Satan talk in the Bible. And then on the other hand, you've got... Those, quote, who believe the devil is a real being mm -hmm. and that spiritual warfare or battling the evil forces of the devil and demons happens every day. And some seem to find a demon behind every door, end quote, such that it can become a kind of obsessive thing. So we're, we're definitely not going to take that latter point. I don't know if we'll end up being the type who are embarrassed by demon <laughs> and Satan talk or if we'll hmm. or if we'll, you know, chart away a little bit more towards the center there. Yeah, I think there is kind of a middle way through that. And I definitely, you know, can identify people on both options that uh, Beck is kind of talking about there. I mean, I, I do encounter people for whom any notion of like supernatural agency, God doing thing, whether it's in the pages of the Bible or how people read the Bible for uh, a certain kind of, of Christian, that's just really embarrassing. And they would just rather, you know, that just kind of all go away. 
but I think, you know, to kind of have a, a more of a chastened view about what we can know and how we kind of engage the supernatural realm doesn't mean you have to go go that way, right? And I think, I think too, I mean, maybe we'll talk about this later, but there's a whole set of psychological tools that we bring to our own experience that just make it really easy to believe in gods and really kind of prime us in a certain way towards supernatural agency. And that, to me, you know, makes it more understandable as to why it's so pervasive, right? And so then it's, you know, not an embarrassment, really, for people to kind of engage in, you know, belief about supernatural agents and, and that kind of stuff stuff you know it's it's a cognitive kind of lens that we have that we bring to the world and the second thing i want to talk about before we start is just there is an understandable fear i i feel a bit of getting this wrong you know like even as i was creating that black metal <laughs> track i was like what if satan loves that i'm doing like the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist right like right. i don't know if i can ever totally get rid of like oh but maybe like i'm helping a demon out by doing this you know right right but that's kind of the the epistemic trap that we're in right like we can't get outside of our own heads in that way we can't get outside of our own bodies in that way you know, there's no kind of neutral kind of standpoint where we can kind of just have the curtain really pulled back and know with certainty whether or not that fear is justified. I think that a self-revealing God of love is going to be okay with you creating that black metal music or the death metal music because uh, it sounds really good. And so if, it, if it turns out that you're helping a demon on <laughs> as a result, I, you know, how, how could you know? <laughs> Fair, fair. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh it's one of the, it's one of those things where it's amped up because the stakes are automatically eternal. Depending on your theology, right? Mm-hmm. You're a demon can't like send me to hell if I'm saved by Christ, right? So it's not necessarily eternal in that sense, but <laughs> unless, you know, as, as one of my friends uh, likes to say, that you know some people in their theology think, well, you can get to you can get sent to hell on a technicality, right? Right. Yeah, <laughs> so. some people do think that. Our friend uh, Jim from BioLogos, when we when we he told the story on that <laughs> end times anxiety. Oh like, yeah, yeah. He, if he swore getting in a car accident and that yeah. was unforgiven, then he would go to hell, like dying yeah. in a car accident, right? <laughs> so that there are there are those people, but I've mm-hmm. never had that kind of a theology, even when I was younger and more conservative. Anyway, that's I just you have to kind of set the table for something like this. So right, number one of the three main planks in your argument, okay? Right. You are not ruling them out metaphysically. My first question for you is what counts as a metaphysically existing spiritual being, spiritual entity? Does it have a mind, a, an individual will? Like what are what would even be the constituent parts of, let's say, a demon? I, I think let's not talk about maybe let's just say Satan is kind of off the table today. Right. Maybe if if we need to talk about Satan, we can. But I'm mostly thinking about demons, such that there are many of them. One of them may be involved in some situation. Right. right. Okay. So what would it take? What does a metaphysically existing demon have? Right. I'm going to take a, a, even one step further back and just kind of have the categories of material object and kind of a, an, an immaterial, non-material kind of object, sometimes called abstract objects in, in philosophy. And, and then once we kind of think about 
you know, are there things that exist that don't have a material location in space-time? What kinds of things could those be? And then if you're talking about supernatural agents that have minds and a will and the opportunity to act, you know, or, you know, human beings having a non-physical soul, you know, that, that kind of stuff, that would be part of that larger category of things that exist that, that don't have a, a location in space-time. And just kind of on that first point, like, you know, philosophers since before Plato uh, have thought that uh, things like numbers, things like properties and meanings and propositions, in one sense, it's easy to talk about math and explain math as if numbers were real things, right? Not just, you know, two physical objects being the number two, but actually some kind of abstract form of the number two that that things kind of participate in. So that's kind of a little, maybe a little inside baseball on the philosophy side of things. But the only point here being that lots of philosophers throughout the centuries have thought quite plausibly in some cases, depending on your intuitions, that there are some things that exist that are real, but they don't have any kind of location in space-time. Okay, so assuming that a demon exists and right. interacts with a human person, right? which is what we're – I don't think anybody cares if demons are sort of flying around, so to speak, but never interact with people ever. That's sort right. of uninteresting theologically, right? right? That's like so, saying, well, demons are like right. dark energy, I guess. Okay. <laughs> and we just don't know any right. – okay, sure. Okay. So so, so now let's – let's uh, before we get to demons, let's just talk about kind of a, a view of human persons that says that human persons not only have a physical body, but you also have a part of you that is not physical. You have uh, an, an immaterial soul, let's say, or a mind or some kind of seat of consciousness that isn't reducible to physical matter. It's a, it's a, a non-physical part of you. And if we can call that some type of dualism, right, where, where you are composed- two, two substances, right? You're yeah. composed of two different kinds of substance or two different kinds of stuff. Now, dualists, if, if you think you have a non-physical soul, one of the challenges is to try and explain- how is it that your non-physical part of you that has no location in space-time can influence the state of your material body, right? And because just like having a thought, thinking about something can make the back of the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, right? And the, the causation kind of goes the other way too, right? Where if you're hungry, right, a physical biological state of your body can make you kind of angry or, you know, can change the the content of your mind. So there's kind of a causal kind of connection between a non-physical part of you and your physical body. Okay, so this is where I wanted to go exactly. We're talking about demons existing, you're saying maybe not in space-time. But they would would have some kind of causal oomph in the world, right? Right. It's the same kind of thing that a dualist is, like, there's there's an an overlap there with what dualists are saying happens in your non-physical mind to your physical body, right? There's there's the same kind of problem of interaction with, you know, a, a supernatural agent having kind of causal oomph in the material world if demons can do all the kinds of things that they're they're said to do now, right. and by, by problem i don't mean like i just it's mean it's not there's, totally there's, insurmountable necessarily well it's just that there, there there's kind of an there's something that needs explaining or some kind of theory that you'd need to have to kind of explain how that works yeah so even if demons and souls are not spatial right. they're not material there's still a temporal element because yeah. if someone says Man, I was really being like I was. It was really the demon of jealousy or a demon, whatever, (laughs) last night. But then I woke up and it wasn't there anymore. So, or you prayed for me and it left. Yeah, I was healed of the demon. 
I'm a little bit like, aren't we still going to have a problem here? Here's my question for you. This is my nerdy question. Okay. Is the demon problem of a demon affecting a human brain or person the exact same problem as the dualist has to solve? Or is there an additional problem? Because I can imagine, yeah, I've got an immaterial soul. There's some part of me that's not material, but it's a set of properties about me. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's maybe like it's one way of talking about the way God sees me. It -hmm. is truly immaterial. But that's not the same as saying, well, my soul was affecting me today and my soul Mm -hmm. will not be affecting me tomorrow. We have an additional layer with an entity like a demon. That's that's right. So I think so here's here's the way in which the the, the problems are the same. It's in at the general level of the problem of how can a non-material thing have causal oomph? in the world of, of matter, of space-time, right? Uh, so that's the way in which they're the same. But I think you're, you're right to say, well, when it comes to, you know, my mental states impacting my physical states, no one's denying that there are mental states. There's just kind of what's at issue is, are they ultimately a non-physical thing or can mental states purely be identified with brain state. So you don't have to postulate like one extra kind of layer of reality. But now if you're, if you're going to attribute things to supernatural agents like demons, that's adding another object in the world. It's a non-physical object, right? So that's a, a complicating factor, right? Yeah, that's helpful. You and I spoke, yeah, about a year ago on this mm-hmm. podcast about the cognitive science of religion. And uh, one of the big hypotheses in the cognitive science of religion, Justin Barrett's work, who we referenced and who mm-hmm. also did an episode with me on evolutionary psychology, he calls it a hyperactive agency detection, mm-hmm. right? This is a thing that we have. It is a, a capacity that we have that may form the basis for basically the biological basis for our ability to feel like we are interacting with God. Mm-hmm. Now, for Justin Barrett, this does not disprove God. It's just like, hey, The mechanism by which I can have a prayer life that Mm -hmm. I feel is in some sense communicative or that I can feel in some sense like God is there, even though God is not a physical entity right in front of me, is this hyperactive agency detection or something like it. I'd like to put that in conversation with the demon question and just Mm -hmm. let you run with it. Yeah, for sure. And and I think kind of what I was referencing earlier when I said we bring a lot of cognitive tools to experience, you know, when tuned a certain way, make it fairly easy for people to buy into supernatural agency of all sorts, right? Uh, And that's exactly one of the tools that I had in view, this idea that we are primed to attribute events as the purpose of action of agents, right? Uh, And there's lots of good evolutionary reasons for that. Uh, One of the classic examples here is that if you're in the savannah and you hear a rustling in the bush, uh, it's probably to your advantage to think, oh, there's there's some kind of animal there. There's some kind of agent making that noise uh, and it kind of triggers fight or flight that's going to be helpful for you as opposed to just thinking that it's the wind. And we just do this quickly. We do it automatically. Uh, We don't have to to slow down and think about it. It just kind of happens in us where we where we see agents uh in in lots of places i think another tool that's relevant here is also the tendency that we have to see things as not only just happenstance by 
agents, but also the result of some kind of purpose, right? You know, and we, we've talked about this before, but experiments with, you know, children who are asked, well, why are the rocks pointy? Well, it's so that animals don't sit on them, right? And, and even people for whom as adults, they are professing kind of atheists or agnostics, when you, when you put them in situations where they have to respond to things in, in real time, so they're not able to kind of slow down and, and, and catch themselves, will tend towards explanations of things that involve purpose, right? So, right. And what has purpose? Beings. Right. Agents with minds, with minds and that are wills. able to, yeah, right. ex- exactly. Yeah, that's right. And so it's not that implausible uh, especially now, if you kind of layer a person's kind of religious context in uh, a type of theology that is very much focused on uh, the experience of supernatural agency as as a as a theological virtue, right, and and also uh, a strong sense of obligation to do your part in engaging the supernatural realm, right? So there's there's a whole theology that can really kind of pour you know gasoline on the on those kind of cognitive embers into right. So maybe this is our first example of threading the needle between the two sides yeah, uh, or between two like, sides in general, right? So you're talking you about might, Beck's two sides or? Uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to do my a different kind of two sides oh, here, okay. but analogous right. to that, right? Yeah. All right. So you might agree with Justin Barrett. Yeah, we've got this agency detection and it can kind of overheat and we can attribute a bunch of things to all kinds of beings that don't exist. Yeah. This allows children to have imaginary friends. That's another uh, yeah. thing that's been postulated, right? Maybe this explains why children have imaginary friends that they really kind of feel like they're interacting with in some way. So, but you can say, look, there is a divine, there mm-hmm. is God. That detection system is the mechanism by which people can interact with the spiritual, mm-hmm. right? The divine, but we can also sort of go too far with it. And Mm -hmm. so you could plausibly say, yes, we have hyperactive agency detection. Yes, there is a real God that that allows us to communicate with. But no, we go too far with it. And like, for instance, you could just say monotheism is an example of pushing back on that agency detection. Like there must be a thousand gods, all these entities all the time. No, it's just there's just God. Mm -hmm. It's simpler than that. That's one sort of middle path we could chart. There's lots of different cognitive layers there, right? And, and when it comes to agency detection, I mean, you might ask, and do we get lots of false positives, right? Where we see agents everywhere and is that where the hyper and hypersensitive comes from? Or is it actually fairly reliable? And it's going to be the kind of thing where you kind of have to identify, well, what, what's the scope of reliability? What are the contexts in which it does seem to be very reliable? And what are the contexts in which it seems to be not that reliable? And then, and then once you kind of sort through that, then the question is, well, where, where would the God case kind of come in or the supernatural agency? Is it more like context in which agency is reliable, agency detection is reliable? Because we, we get it right a lot of the times. Like if I hear a yeah. knocking on, on, on my door, like three quick raps in a, in a succession, I just am going to assume that there's someone knocking. It's not just the wind. It's not just a happenstance. And that's a pretty reliable, <laughs> you know, implementation of agency right. detection. So. Right. It's kind of like there's a separate question, which is whether or not something like God could exist at all. Right. And then if you think no, well, then you're just going to think that the agency detection is hypersensitive. And that's why people believe in a God that doesn't exist. Yeah. But if you have independent reasons for believing that God might exist, then 
here's sort of how those maybe go together. Yeah. And I, I think for me, that's, that's kind of, a, and we talked about this on the CSR podcast, but that's kind of a, a lesson that I want to apply when I think through how that area of psychology applies to philosophy and, and philosophy of religion and the, theological questions. There are some exceptions, but most of the time, the, the, the psych literature, in my view, doesn't count as evidence against God's existence or even against, you know, the activity of supernatural agents, but it doesn't count as evidence for it either. But if you are uh, someone who believes in God, if you believe, you know, if you're open to the possibility of believing in supernatural agency, what what the the, the cognitive uh, science of religion gives you is kind of a lens to kind of interpret that. Whereas if if you are, you know, strongly motivated to be skeptical about any gods, you don't believe in supernatural agency at all. What the CSR literature gives you is a nice kind of explanation about what's going on in the meat between your ears uh, as to why people think that way. Now that I've kind of stumbled in real time on this, there is the divine, but there aren't like a bunch of beings Mm -hmm. in that realm. I want to ask you the implications for this for all three categories. So what are the metaphysical differences in terms of what I believe is out there? What are the consequences between Look, I'm going to metaphysically claim that God exists, but I'm not going to claim that the innumerable demonic and angelic beings also exist or small G gods or however you want to say it versus I'm saying they all exist. Like, what do I sort of get? What am I paying for? What's the cost? You know, et cetera. Yeah, that's um, let me see if this is kind of getting at what you're what you're after here. Like, I think just in terms of your engagement with the world, if you have, you know, philosophers will call this an ontology, right? A, a list of things that exists. And if your ontology or your list of things that that, you know, populates the world includes a whole whack of, I think the technical term is shitload of supernatural <laughs> agents, then that's going to give you some, you know, you're going to be looking to kind of explain all sorts of things in the everyday world as the activity of those uh, supernatural agents, right? And and also there's going to be kind of a burden that, that you have to kind of make sense of things in light of the activity of all of those uh, supernatural agents. Which and is I what think, we find in that second class that Richard Begg talks about, yeah. the people who are looking for a yeah. demon around every corner. Yeah, so there might be some benefits to that but there's also a cost too in the sense of needing to kind of just explain things in that realm uh, with with those agents and i think the, the the cost is that for so many of these things there are just alternative explanations for what we see that that just don't require that same level of imagination uh, that same that specific degree of certainty that 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 is appealed to in tr- trying to understand what's going on with these unseen agents, right? And I think in some ways that's a cost that you have to kind of pay in order to kind of have have that worldview. So I have one more thing I want to talk about under this banner of not ruling them out metaphysically, which yeah. is the the thing about demons all over Africa, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, which a lot of I think if you've been evangelical long enough, you've heard these anecdotes mm-hmm. and, and stories. Yeah. So when someone brings this up and you or you see it written or whatever, and they go, look, well, there's all these exorcisms going on all the time in Africa. And I've had multiple friends, white mm-hmm. Americans yeah. who have traveled to places like Southeast Asia or Africa yeah. and encountered exorcisms or things they could not explain. Uh, Greg Boyd, the theologian and author, famously talks about a handful of these experiences that he has seen where he's like, I don't I can't explain how this mm-hmm. woman ripped free of these chains or, you know, or whatever. Right. Yeah. So what do you think when you hear this sort of, there seems to be a cultural difference going on? 
Yeah, and that that is significant, right? And I'm just going to preface this by saying I am not an expert in comparative Christian experience in in this regard. So let me just put that out there at the start. The the few times where I've met people uh, from Africa who have talked about their own experiences in in that way, you know, theologically trained, well-educated people who are bringing to their reflection on their own experience, a very strong kind of openness to the activity of the demonic, the activity of the the role that spiritual warfare has to play in helping people recover from illness, for example, that kind of thing. I certainly don't want to discount their experience. I hopefully will have enough humility to say there are things in their life and experience that they have access to that I don't right? Just in terms of their own histories, right? So, you know, I'll I'll put that at the start. I find myself, though, asking, okay, well, that's one possible explanation. What are some other explanations to account for what it is that we see? And, you know, we we see this in every particular, you know, social historical location, that the way in which culture tunes our cognitive kind of processes is that in, in ways that we only really become aware of when we con- in contact with people from a different place, tune- tunes what we see and how we experience things. And so without kind of making any blanket kind of pronouncement to say it's all bullshit, you know, I certainly don't want to don't want to say that. I just find myself asking, hmm, what other possible explanations could be, account for that experience? And how is it that, that we could kind of determine one way or the other? Let me ask you this. <laughs> I'm trying, a- <laughs> I mean, no, it, it's, this is a thorny one. This is maybe the biggest question right. in my mind around this topic. But let me ask you this. Have you ever heard stories of sort of like white Protestants going to Africa or Southeast Asia and themselves feeling possessed or are all the stories that you've heard that they witnessed local people apparently being possessed? I don't have a whole, uh, a large stock of stories in either case. I'm just thinking more of scholars from Africa that I've encountered who are very comfortable with possession and uh, spiritual warfare and combating illness, right? So, yeah. so I, th- that's kind of the the examples that that I have in view. Maybe some some examples that I'm more familiar with are. I mean, there, there are subcultures in North America that are very charismatic. And I know several people who have been involved uh, at different levels in kind of the vineyard movement, which, you know, in, in its zenith was all about like manifestations of the spirit, God showing up big time, uh, words of prophecy, words of, of knowledge, and people in, in fairly high positions of leadership within different kind of vineyard churches who have kind of just become full-on skeptics about supernatural agency at all. And when they kind of look back at their own previous life, they are able to kind of explain it away through all sorts of psychological and social factors, right? So not that those two cases are analogous, but I guess for me, the lesson is a high degree of certainty about what's going on supernaturally isn't necessarily good evidence that you're you're onto something. Sure. I mean, I guess the reason I make the distinction that the the two stories I'm thinking of, maybe there's three or four, Mm -hmm. specifically including Greg Boyd and uh, another buddy of mine, they weren't the ones getting possessed. Right. And so the reason I make that distinction and people listeners can think of the stories they've heard and apply this, whatever. But 
there's something where w- one angle on this question is why does it, possession always kind of manifest in erratic behavior? Like, what if you could just be possessed by a really boring demon and you just kind of no one could tell, right? That's interesting, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there, there is another layer that we don't necessarily need to get into of like how much of what we would now call just mental disorders, right? But you could, you could certainly say, well, maybe some of the demons that Jesus, for instance, exercised were just him healing mental disorders, and some right. were demons. Yeah. That doesn't get you completely out of the ball right. game. Yeah. So I, I interrupted right. you. You were kind of going on to these. Well, these no, stories it's in related. Particular. Yeah. So I think to some extent. I think there's actually very good evidence that people experience more or less what they expect to experience, or at least within the bounds of the things that in their time and place and culture, they think they might experience. It is interesting that the people I know who didn't believe in demons aren't the ones experiencing demons themselves. They just see a thing that they go, oh, I really couldn't explain that with my expectation structure. I think that's right. And it's not like we can't acquire new concepts over time. Sure. But uh, when you have people who have kind of a fairly different and more nuanced kind of set of categories to navigate their experience, they're just going to they're going to think differently. It's hard not to like I'm about to read some diagnostic stuff. I feel like the the standard (laughs) here is to go, oh, I'm the objective white scientist person. I'm not trying to say that at all. Right. I'm just simply saying there may be a sort of a, a psychological rule that people basically only experience things that they expect to experience. And that's mm-hmm. not morally bad right. or good. It just is. And right. if you could identify that, you could maybe help a lot of people. So yeah. here's, I think, the biggest piece of evidence for this this angle on the argument right. is there are multiple mental disorders that mm-hmm. only happen in certain cultures. Yeah. I'm going to read two of them to you right now. Yeah. These are pulled from some psychiatric websites. So the first one is called Koro. It is a culturally related disorder characterized by intense anxiety that the penis in a man or the vulva or nipples in a woman is shrinking or retracting and will recede into the body. It usually occurs in epidemics in Southeastern Asia. Uh, being extremely rare in Western countries. The condition is more common in males and it's classified within obsessive compulsive and related disorders. Mm. So Westerners don't get Koro. Southeast mm. Asians do. And they get it from each other in an mm-hmm. epidemic. It's like they get it like mono, right? <laughs> so that's weird. Like there's something quite powerful about the psyche. If it's possible to be to get something like this from your friend mm-hmm. and it's purely in your mind, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, is that really that surprising insofar as uh, when you think of how like illusions, right, when there's kind of a group expectation of a certain kind of behavior that can be experienced widely by lots of people or different kinds of, you know, charismatic kind of healing events or, you know, slain in the spirit kind of. Well, that's uh, kind of what we're asking, right? Yeah, no, is, that, is there a connection there? Yeah. And, and right. I think certainly that my understanding of the psych literature and a lot of that stuff is if you're able to be primed with a certain expectation that this is going to happen, then that makes yeah. it much more likely that it will happen. Right. So right. there's kind of a self. Sure. <laughs> so, that, so there's prophecy. It just might be self-fulfilling prophecy in right. some ways. Right. Exactly. Do you see, see what I did there? I did. That's good. Here's another one. <laughs> Ghost sickness. It's a culture bound syndrome that links mental and physical problems with visitations or other connections to a death or a deceased person. Hmm. There are case studies where participating in the appropriate religious ceremony in these cultures 
is actually encouraged by their psychiatrist mm-hmm. and has helped with healing, like, mm-hmm. you know, peer reviewed case studies. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, this brings up another interesting thing, which I was going to maybe save to the end, but I'll, I'll throw it in now. Mm-hmm. There is some sense in which demons or healings or whatever might not be real, but they might as well be real insofar as believing that they're real have has causal power. For sure. So in some sense, it doesn't matter. It, 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 this is a reason to think if you don't believe in demons – you might not be so worried that other people do. Or if you don't believe in supernatural healing, you might not be. Now, you can present your counterargument to that. But insofar as like for some people who believe in supernatural healings or demons, they will actually those beliefs will be efficacious in their life. Now, we could ask how often they're going to be good, efficacious or bad, efficacious, but they're real, at least insofar as they produce effects in people. Right. Yeah, this is where it gets kind of tricky, though, you know, and, and so so one one kind of approach is to say, you know, we can't rule them out. And it seems there seem to be some psychological benefits that are uh, available to people that they can access when they when they believe uh, certain things, regardless of whether they're true or not. There might be some psychological goods that, you know, accrue to the person for having, you know, thinking of, of angels kind of helping them or protecting them or being able to overcome, you know, negative forces through prayer of supernatural. Agents, yeah. Kind of or a, but, a deceased loved one watching over them and and you know, praying on their behalf to God and, you know, sort of being in the room with them. Yeah. And, but, you know, as you kind of alluded to, it's not just all positive benefits that kind of can result from that kind of mindset. There can be some real harms that, that come too. And uh, like, if, if you, you know, are mistaken about the cause of some behavior and you think that the solution is to do the right kind of magic to, to get the supernatural realm to work in a certain way, then you're doing more harm than, than good, right? And it might give you a sense of well-being that at least you're doing something, but are you really doing something? Well, and, and so the, the challenge then is, you know, how, how could you weed out the, the, the negative cases and only accept kind of the positive psychological benefits. So that, that's kind of one challenge. I think also there was a, a famous kind of essay written by uh, uh, philosopher William Clifford in, in the 1800s. It was called The Ethics of Belief. And this is kind of a famous essay in philosophy because Clifford was really kind of, you know, it wasn't overtly against religion, but religion kind of is a subtext in his, in his paper. And basically he's saying, look, people, only base your beliefs on evidence, because if you kind of throw that principle out, you're open to all these kind of moral problems, right? And, and he, he gives us an example of a ship owner, right? So this is like, you know, 1800s, uh, an English ship owner who's got lots of reasons to think that his ship is, is faulty, right? It's, it's not seaworthy. And it's actually been chartered to carry a whole bunch of migrants from England to the new world. And he kind of wonders, well, should this, should this voyage go ahead? But he's able to convince himself that no, it's going to be okay. And part of his reasons, the ship owner's reasons for convincing himself that the passage is going to be okay is that, well, there's, you know, God is going to protect these people. He, God wouldn't let this ship go down because God's a God of love. And so there's a belief about what the supernatural is going to do and act in a way that's supposed to have good effects in the world. And of course, the way Clifford tells the story, the, the ship goes down and the ship owner collects 
the insurance and who can know the providence of God, right? So, so I, I guess there's some, some issues with Clifford's essay in terms of what evidence is and what counts as evidence. Yeah. But actually, in this world of fake news and also in this kind of area of anything goes supernatural agency – I think uh, maybe we need a little healthy dose of, of Clifford to kind of say, shouldn't, shouldn't we guide our beliefs? Shouldn't, shouldn't our action and behavior and beliefs about the world be more sensitive to evidence than, than they are? And I guess that's the, the, the thing I would kind of push back a little bit on. Well, oh, what does it really matter? There are these psychological benefits. Maybe in the short term, but if you, if you develop a culture and society, and this was kind of Clifford's worry, where, where people just become credulous, Right. Or uh, he doesn't use this phrase, but we can maybe say they just kind of help themselves to magical thinking. Is, is that is that really going to be helpful in, in the long run? And I, I would say no. We're seeing a lot of that these days on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> Especially with COVID, with so much uncertainty around COVID and everything Who else. Who knew that, that everyone was an epidemiologist? In. <laughs> this is, this is the real. Are, you know, <laughs> I think people are grasping on to simpler answers that. Yeah. Even if they're quite fantastical because they relieve the cognitive dissonance of living with so much uncertainty for so long, yeah. which we're really not – we're not quite evolved to do, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, well, right, right. So, okay, I have a thought on the Clifford bit and then I have a thought on what you said earlier, which he kind of brings us into. So my buddy Ben Bishop just recently launched uh, a very good interview oh. podcast called Faith and Letters where he interviews basically authors – it's it's sort of like at the the Venn diagram of like religious life and writing. He interviewed this guy, Daniel Taylor, about his book, The Myth of Certainty, which I absolutely loved. Mm. And Ben actually talks about how he I guess I mailed him a copy of it. And that's why <laughs> I interviewed him anyway. But Daniel Taylor had an interesting point in their interview. He said, look, on the one hand, you've got sort of harm reduction and and skepticism can reduce risk it's true and you will not go too far but also you can you can pathologically be skeptical such that you never right. take any risks and right. then you never live life right and so find you know there's a balance to be found in terms of what's the right amount of skepticism and how much is too much where we're not even going to like try and love our neighbor in a way that we can't make sure the data lines up before we do it and so that's just something to be on the lookout for is because uh, I, I totally take your point and I fully agree uh, that we should not lean on God's providence when people's lives are at risk or anything else for that matter is at mm -hmm. risk. Right. So I, I guess what I'm where I find myself kind of thinking, though, as, as you're kind of spinning that out and how it applies to what we're talking about here is if we're contemplating a course of action and we kind of look at the available kind of actions that are, you know, different paths before us, uh, different things that we can do. And this this kind of is is a preview to some of the maybe the, the the moral kind of weight of all this, but you know if we want to help, I guess what's what's going to help, right? And uh, there, there's a, a need that someone has, and we're figuring out kind of what what's what can we do to help. And understandably, you know, Christians and other religious believers they think, well, one thing we can do is pray. Because, you know, we're going to pray, you know, and, and you hear this sometimes, particularly in, in certain kind of evangelical circles, but, well, that's the most important thing we can do is pray. It's the most effective thing. It's we the can most do, effective right? thing we can do because, because of the supernatural power that's there. Because God is more powerful than us. And so if we right. pray to God, God can act. And yeah. Yeah. And then you kind of layer the spiritual warfare angle to it too, which is to say, oh, well, and we need to pray because if we don't pray, heaven's armies can't be unleashed with the power that they, that they need in order right. to kick ass in Jesus name. Right. So. Yeah. Mar Mark Karras talks about, uh, I think it's him. He talks about like 
uh, prayer meters, how, <laughs> yeah. how basically like right. you get far enough down that road and you'll have people almost yeah. explicitly believing that like, I, if we can get this prayer meter high enough, then something will happen. And, and now you're into absurdity. And for 1999, Dan, I can sell you one uh, right. and it can be a personally inscribed prayer meter and we can send oh, it to you. Amazon, with my name Amazon, in, in oh, gold exactly. leaf. Yeah, yeah good. <laughs> Perfect. So, um, so, so yeah. I guess when I'm thinking about those available options for courses of action, you know, what, what is really going to help? It just seems to me that in a lot of times when people fly to invoking supernatural power, it's more about feeling that you've done something, right? It's, it's more about the person's sense that, well, now I feel like I've done something to help. Um, I actually haven't, you know, gotten my ass off the couch, but I've prayed, right? Or I haven't done anything that really costs me other than some time, right? And this is not to, to say that it's not useful to pray, but if <laughs> when we kind of look at, at how to how to actually help in those situations. I think, you know, we just maybe want to consider other ways. Yeah. So one last thought on this is that let's assume for the sake of argument, but I think we probably agree that in all religious traditions, yeah. when you get down to the lay person level, uh, people who are not sort of theologically sophisticated, you know, peasants and the modern equivalent of peasants. Okay. Whatever. So we're not judging them. We're just saying this is most people. I, f- I felt like when you said peasants, you were judging. I'm not judging. <laughs> okay. Um, but this kind of, of religion mm-hmm. often includes a lot of silliness around, you know, divine favor. You think of little shrines built to like help the harvest or whatever. One approach to that would be like the Sam Harris approach, which is like, just get rid of religion. If religion is full of all this silliness, right? Another angle is, Let's appreciate what's going on in people when they are engaging in this silliness. Like, what is their heart crying out to God for? Is there something beautiful about that that we can value, right? And say, look, maybe let's reform the religion and move it further away from some of the silliness than just obliterate it. So, uh, so I, yeah. I, I wouldn't use the word silliness to kind of talk about the trappings of religious uh, belief and behavior that are expressed kind of in, in those uh, common ways. I think there is uh, a sense that, again, to go back to cognitive science of religion, like w- what makes concepts and beliefs and practices, you know, religious is that in some sense they're counterintuitive right? Like gods can't be exactly like humans because if they were, they wouldn't be gods and we wouldn't worship them. Now, interestingly enough, psychologically, they can't be so different from humans that we can't keep them in our mind's eye. So they have to, there has to be some, some kind of overlap between what gods are like and what they do and what humans are like and what, and what we do in order for us to kind of latch onto them cognitively. So that's just part of the fabric of religious experience and ritual is that there has to be something that's kind of counterintuitive to them. And, you know, the thing about, you know, different ritualistic behaviors, shrines, rituals, uh, other kinds of things, think about uh, the Eucharist, think about communion, right? And the the different views that there are about what's going on when you have uh, the bread and the wine, right? At one level, is that silliness? Well, sh- I, I guess if you think about it a certain way, but in a deep kind of binding way, that's a, a very transformative and communal kind of activity, right? And so maybe it's just speaking to larger issues here about how kind of religion functions and what's, you know, silliness in some ways is going to be in the eye of the beholder. 
Yeah, well, good. So you just did exactly the thing I recommended as the third way. You took it seriously (laughs) and treated Mm -hmm. it seriously. And I love that. Anything else on not ruling them out metaphysically before we take a short break? Just to say that part of it has to do with the level of certainty that that we have. And I think that there are lots of smart people throughout the centuries who have thought that all sorts of objects are real, even though they don't have a location in space-time. You know, so just to claim with a high degree of certainty and skepticism that, that they're just impossible, I think goes beyond the evidence of what we have. Uh, Myron, we'll be right back and we'll talk about you are quite skeptical epistemologically about what we could know about <laughs> demons if they I, do exist. This week on the patron-only exclusive episode feed coming out Wednesday is a conversation with Dr. John Petit about psychiatry and Christianity. So we do talk a lot about psychology on this show, of course. You, you've you come to expect that. But this was an interesting conversation, a bit more about psychiatry, although we do we talk about both. Uh, and he edited a volume, or he's editing currently editing a volume on Christianity and psychiatry. So we're talking about, you know, positive and negative effects of religion and spirituality. We're talking about church-based mental health stigma. We're talking about natural or faith healing traditions, talk a little bit about possession, hearing from God, these kind of uh, difficult to describe and and really talk about scientifically phenomena. So it's good chat. And if you're kind of interested in that world, as you all know, I am, I think you'll enjoy it. So episodes like that, there are two a month. They are exclusive to patrons. You can become a patron for $5 a month. You you can give more if you'd like, but you needn't feel pressured to at patreon.com slash Dan Coke, or you have permission pod.com and click become a patron. Okay. Back to the episode. All right, Myron. So we talked about how you are not ruling out demons metaphysically. Now we're going to talk about how you are, however, quite skeptical epistemologically in terms of what could be known about them. Why don't you just kick us off with your 30,000 foot view of why you are skeptical epistemologically? Let me uh, start with a story um, about a good friend. This was maybe a couple of years ago, right around uh, an election that we were having in, in Canada. And it was a federal election and different parties kind of were trotting out their platforms. And we were on a run and I just kind of happened to ask, so who are you thinking of voting for? You know, kind of passing the time. And uh, she said, well, I don't know. There doesn't seem to be a lot to choose between the, the different leaders. And then she said that she kind of thought also that the leaders of any kind of political party are really just kind of ruled by demons, basically. So she had this, this, this kind of view, and it was, it's a really uh, kind of anti-government view where, you know, the, 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 it doesn't matter who's in power, that the leader of any kind of political party or political system is just, you know, uh, a front for some kind of demonic power or presence, right? Uh, so this is, this is distinct from 
absolute power corrupts absolutely and whenever people get power (laughs) they end up being becoming shittier versions of themselves yeah and they want to do well but they can't (laughs) this is not that claim no there's not some kind of like you know because i can get behind that one that's pretty good right that seems pretty empirically backed up (laughs) yeah no this this was kind of her view and i think it kind of reflected you know her church and and Mm. this this idea that no the the real call for the for, for the church is to be kind of this minority group standing against the, the, the principalities and powers. And they are quite skeptical about whether or not political structures can be used as a force for good. Which, so, so, okay, so, but, you know, we should point to, like, massive global aid basically cutting extreme poverty in a third and cutting AIDS in a third, and, you know, stuff like that. But yeah. okay, well, well that's and, fine. We're not actually arguing with her right now. I don't even know why I'm doing this. <laughs> right. Sure. Well, and and uh, I mean, I'm in the socialist paradise of Canada with like awesome healthcare, right. and so like if 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 ever there was evidence against that, but so that to me kind of illustrates in a concrete way my my immediate response is like, well, why should we think that that's true? Right. Like like what? As what you said possible, earlier, yeah. Yeah. Like what? The what philosopher's re- question. Right. Like what, what, you know, what reasons should we have for thinking that these, you know, very articulate kind of representatives of political parties who have, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm not saying this as someone like I, I have had relatives who've been involved in politics. And so I know kind of a, the, the down and dirty kind of aspect of it. I'm not saying these are saints, but I'm not saying that they're demons either. Right. Yeah. It's quite, it's quite yeah. an interesting claim. <laughs> so, so, and that to me, yeah. So that kind of just illustrates kind of the, the, the challenge that's there when we ask ourselves, well, why should we think that it's true? And I think in, in defense of her and, and others who are inclined to, you know, really s- interpret their experience as part of a supernatural realm like, like that, one, they, their answer would be, well, it's, it's in the pages of scripture, right? right? And so one pushback for me as a Christian, you might say, well, how do you read the Bible then? What do you do with these authoritative texts? And in what sense, what, what do you do with the Bible? Yeah, so that, that's a legitimate question. So it seems to me that we have basically three possible sources of information on demons. Like, let's say we can know things about demons. I can think of three ways we could know Uh, the Bible or in another religious context, a different religious text, personal testimony. Yeah. Right. So that is people say they have had an interaction with the demon. Yeah. Uh, Mm Neo-pagans report personal experiences sometimes with their small g gods and then the third would be direct communication for instance if you believe a person can be possessed by a demon and they speak then the demon can tell you something about itself through the voice box of the person being possessed can you think of any other source of information than those well, three depends how you de- define that second one so so there's the bible then there's also kind of like the, the testimony of people who have said to have experienced that or, and uh-huh. then your and then your own and then the third one is your own kind of personal subjective experience. Is that? Oh, I'm saying no. Like theoretically, to play demon's advocate here, yeah. <laughs> which I've been been waiting for that one for a oh. while. A demon. It said these things. We are legion. Like, oh, this oh, demon's so, name is legion. So, so from the demon themselves, reportedly, right, yeah, direct right. communication from the demon right. would be the third category. I mean, kind of layered through that too. I think your tradition can be a source of authority as well. Like if, you know, if you're part of a, a religious tradition or uh, that 
purports to have knowledge about how these things work. They, they kind of just tell you kind of what it's like. So some people would, yeah. you know, and, and maybe that's where tradition gets, you know, layered over the reading of sacred texts and that kind right. of thing. Yeah, so those, the tradition tells together. you this is, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that seems pretty, pretty exhaustive. Okay. So with those in mind, we don't need to like go through each of those or anything, right. but just with those in mind, I want to go back to this, this middle way of affirming the divine, but not affirming these many spiritual beings. So at an epistemological level, what are some challenges that we don't necessarily face if we're saying we can know something about God that we are facing if we say we can know something about these numerous smaller deities? Well, I just I just think it's this general kind of principle that the, the, the burden of proof goes up the more specific the claim that you have. Right. Uh, and that, you know, when when there are these very specific claims made about very specific supernatural agents doing very specific things that having certain, you know, very specific effects and impacts. Right. Or these very specific counterfactual claims to say, well, if you don't do this, then this is what's going to happen. If you don't pray and if you don't pray in exactly this way, using this particular formula to bind that particular agent, if you don't do that, then uh, literally all hell is going to break loose. Right. And, and I think just this kind of general epistemological principle to say that the more specific your claim, the claim that you're making, the, the higher the standard of, of evidence or reason, you know, good, good kind of grounds for thinking that that's true needs to be shouldered. Right. And, and so I think that to me provides kind of the resource for kind of taking a step back and saying, well, you know, discussion about rationality and the plausibility of just belief in God more generally, uh, belief in a Christian God more specifically, that's, that's kind of one, one area to kind of talk about. And I think that there are more profitable discussions to be had on, on that kind of score. And I think actually just to put a plug in for the, the series that you are doing with I don't believe in that God either. I think that's the kind of thing that's going on when you are having discussions with people about, you know, the value of the religious life, the intellectual plausibility of the religious life in some general kind of ways. Right. But that, that's a different type of conversation. What, um, what ends up happening in those conversations is if you're listening to something like that and your desire is to maintain or begin a Christian life mm-hmm. or resume a Christian life, I think that the permission structure there is like, look at all these options, right? Like one of these might be true. And I think one of them probably is, and I don't know which one, Mm -hmm. Um, but these collection of possibilities are plausible enough when combined with experience and yada, 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 right? Once you get down to like Sananda told me, (laughs) right? Okay. Who's Sananda? And you know, like... What yeah. is the like? Oh, yeah, you're you're making uh, just a much more specific claim right. that seems much harder to prove. Yeah, and then you, if you find yourself doing that, it seems like the re- reasonable thing to do to yourself is to question that because mm-hmm. it is so difficult to provide evidence for. Yeah, and and I think there's also kind of a a good kind of epistemological principle that says, you know, we we, sh- we shouldn't just jump to an explanation for something because it's, A, the first one that we think of, or maybe it's the only one we can think of. Um, it's not a guarantee that you're going to latch on to the true explanation or the true cause of things to to kind of compare one possible explanation with a host of others, but it's it's just a good practice, right? And and I think what you get in a lot of communities that that really support this kind of engagement with the supernatural is is a kind of insularity to say, well, they're not maybe 
they're not aware of psychological explanations for mental disorders that could also be relevant to understanding what's going on. Right. And, and so that's, that's not a good thing either. And I guess it's, it's kind of just, you know, the, the embrace of magical thinking that's, that's going to have, you know, harmful side effects, I think in, uh, in all sorts of cases. There's kind of an irony here epistemologically because demons and angels are more like us than God is like us. And so they provide a kind of a, it seems to me a kind of a thematic bridge, a sort of a, um, a categorical bridge somewhere between God who is so distant and like whatever kind of entity can both create a universe and be everywhere at one time. And like, that's so big and abstract, but then there's like angels, which are kind of like us. So there's a sense in which there's like the, the Darwin ascent of man, you know, great chain of being kind of a thing that seems to serve a real strong psychological purpose by putting a kind of an intermediary type of a being in between us. But ironically we can say, it seems we can say much less about them than we can say about God because God is so distant and different. It's like we actually we're kind of we tend to be have a more built in humility about what we're <laughs> going to say about God, I, I, hopefully, ideally. And many, many mm-hmm. Christians, even who have a kind of a folk religion, if you really press them on it, will say, of course, I don't know what God is like. like God is, of course, bigger than everything. But you People don't seem to do that with demons. They they often seem to have quite a bit more knowledge, it seems, about them. And so that seems ironic to me. Yeah, and, and I think uh, you've just kind of uh, made me think of something, too, that when you have this excessive focus on what the supernatural agents are like, uh, angels and demons, it, in my view, takes your focus off of Jesus. And if Jesus is fully human and fully God— then we have access to what God is like through the person and work of Christ. And so that to me is a much more tangible bridge to the divine is to just focus on Jesus. Right. And so, yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay. My last question on this section, right. Actually I have two more. Is there a way to do with the spiritual realm of entities beyond God, what we've been talking about, what that we do do with God, where it's like, look, is is it possible to just say the simplest explanation, given whatever data someone thinks they have, is to say that we can't say much about demons or angels or whatever, but it just seems like there's some other class of beings that exists that we should be respectful of. You know, you wouldn't want to mm-hmm. you wouldn't make a bunch of particular claims about them. Mm-hmm. If you leave this rice out, this will happen. Or if you <laughs> whatever, you, you mm-hmm. wouldn't want to do that. But you just want to say, hey, seems to me more likely than not that there's something. And so, yeah. you know, like what about yeah, a yeah. sort of a middle position like that? Well, and and, and I think that's the kind of thing you'd want to do on a case by case basis, as opposed to, to really kind of investing in a deep kind of metaphysical structure. Oh, right? interesting. And I'm going to say, re- say more about that. Like flesh yeah. that out a little bit, a case so by case basis. I'm going to talk a little bit about my former colleague here at Trinity Western, uh, Philip Weeb, who is no longer with us. And Phil's kind of career was uh, in philosophy of religion and philosophy of science. And he was a hardcore empiricist. 
he did his PhD with one of the most 20th century's most foremost empirical uh, minded philosophers, Jack Smart uh, at Adelaide. And uh, Phil was definitely in that tradition. And in his career, he turned his attention to uh, uh, empirical investigations for supernatural phenomena. And his, and his first major book with uh, Oxford was called Visions of Jesus. And he looked at case studies of people who had claimed to see Jesus, right? And he just did kind of a philosophy of science kind of analysis of it and kind of, you know, separated the wheat from the chaff in terms of Christic visions. His next book, and this is the one that's kind of really relevant to your question, in this kind of research trajectory is called God and Other Spirits. And so there he looks at cases, both from biblical texts, but also psychological cases of people who have claimed to encounter demons, who have claimed to have encountered spirits. And so in science, there are all sorts of things that are postulated to exist that we can't really see directly, right? But we have evidence for them in indirect ways, right? Uh, we don't see minute subatomic particles directly, but we have right. evidence that they exist through different experiments that we can do. We can interpret the data. And so what Phil did in, in God and Other Spirits is applied that to cases of reports of spiritual encounters. And one of the themes in that book was kind of exactly where you wound up just earlier, where you said, maybe a lot of these reports we can just kind of dismiss as not really having a lot going for them. But it could be that there are a handful of accounts where you can't just kind of hand wave it away easily. And if you apply generally accepted criteria for postulating entities like we do in sciences that we can't see directly, there might be something there, right? And, yeah. and so epistemologically, I think that's a, a much better uh, way to go. And I think that's what I mean by by case by case basis. And so I, I try and yeah. yeah, that's that's a trying a posture that I try and adopt when I when someone gives me a report. That reminds me of something that Richard Beck throws out in his book, The Slavery of Death. Mm. And he talks about how we do experience That's a happy title. Yeah, right. <laughs> My therapist recommended it to me. Um, <laughs> true story. Many years ago. Uh, he talks about how there are evil forces. Like he says, look, imagine you're in Nazi Germany in 1938 as the rhetoric is amping up against Jews, right? Is that simply a collection of 30 million individual German attitudes? Or is there something that is sort of sweeping through Germany at that time, right? That people are getting caught up in, in some you know poetic, but real kind of a sense. He's like, why not call that a spiritual force? It is a movement of sorts. People are more likely to be swept up into it if they're in a certain place at a certain time. It has effects on their choices and their mental states. It contributes to evil and havoc and great suffering. Something like that, he says, if you're skeptical of like the personal mind of that thing, fine. But it has a directionality. It is toward evil. And it has a force that it applies to people. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, it's an open question if something like that could be called a force in sort of the way that capitalism can be called an idea whose mm -hmm. time had come. It had a kind of a force. Like mm -hmm. once people recognized what it could do, they became capitalists. Right. Mm -hmm. So how would a human brain interact with a force like that? Would we maybe uh, put some features on it that make it seem like an entity it's a kind of a middle way of thinking about this. And yeah, sure. Are we maybe mistaken in some of the things that we ascribe to that force 
let's say we want to give it a name or we want to say it's particularly getting me today on purpose. (laughs) Okay, we could be wrong about that, but we wouldn't necessarily be wrong about the quality of the force, the directionality of the force, the fact that on certain days I get more caught up in it. Now, maybe those are days when I'm tired or an immigrant, <laughs> an immigrant just took my job last week or, you know, whatever. Mm, right. But it's still a, I, I find that very interesting and a fairly fruitful way. It may it doesn't maybe match all instances. And I wonder, you know, if if he were here today, your your former colleague, that'd be an interesting question to ask him mm-hmm. of how many of his examples yeah. might that go some direction toward explaining or not. So I get what you're saying. I get, I get the example. And I think that there is something, there's a real phenomenon there that is being mapped through that kind of language, the zeitgeist of the people at a certain time having a, a directionality and a power, right? L- literally a power to, to change uh, and, and towards evil. And I, I get kind of the sense of spirit that's used there when it's identified as a kind of a spiritual force. But I think for me, what I am wondering, though, is are we using spiritual force in the same way to say that it doesn't have a physical explanation? And so if if it's just kind of a shorthand for a really kind of complex set of physical processes that out of which this has emerged, then I would say, well, maybe spiritual isn't to call it a spiritual force isn't the right kind of kind of well, it's more like an idea, right? It's it's and well, are are people saying that idea like is capitalism a complex set of physical causes? Well, well, so so okay, so so we're we're talking about the the racial bias and mistreatment of of Jews in pre-World War II Germany. Is that what we're talking about? And and kind of the, the, uh, and how that kind of carried on throughout uh, the war. I think that there are lots of candidates for very good kind of physical explanations of the mental lives of people through cognitive kind of biases that we all have in virtue of being human. And you can appeal to historical and sociological factors that explain why at that moment there was the, the it was the fullness of time in that sense for, for, I mean, the, the historical conditions were there out of which that, that kind of emerged. Right. And, and there is, there is a force there and it is, it is, palpable. uh, And there is a certain kind of spirit uh, about it. But I don't know that we need to necessarily say that uh, it's the result of actions in a supernatural realm, according to which, you know, that's the reason that that happened at that time in Germany, right? So yeah, okay. So so you're you're applying a pretty strict philosophical rubric here to say, would that count as demons or forces the way we're talking about it? Right, and and, and I it would might say, not. and I would say it it, it might not. So I so I yeah. I'm happy to kind of acknowledge that there are those kind of movements. Malcolm but I, but I, so but another way of thinking about yeah. it is like more poetically, or yeah. like right. if you're trying to make sense of the Bible, Paul right. saying yeah. we are really at war with powers and principalities. Right, you know, Beck has a blog post where he talks about this again, where he talks about bureaucratic systems that ignore the humanity of individual people. That yeah. these can be demonic forces. These are evil forces right, right. there systems set up to do wrong yeah and so that's, what, that's, yeah. that's that's demonic without a demon right, right. it's demonic without <laughs> a demon i which is sort of what he's saying right which is which I, I'm, I think it's I'm, an, I'm happy with yeah it's it's a it's an interesting way it's another kind of a third way here of saying for most of the stories and most of the instances of people being affected by spiritual forces we don't need to posit like metaphysical ontological beings but we still do have this kind of wind sweeping through that people can be caught up in 
mm-hmm. that are evil, right? And so yeah. that's that's the sense of like mm-hmm. it's more of a poetic. It's more of a. It goes to my next question, frankly, which is my last question in the epistemology epistemology mm-hmm. section, which is for you personally. Mm-hmm. How do you control for worldview change or whatever when you read the biblical text and you come across these passages that seem to have possessions or Paul talking about, you know, supernatural forces and all that stuff? Like, what, what, do, you, what do you mean by personally? Control? I don't know. Like, how do you do you go? Well, I understand that this is the language that they had and right. I then control for it in this way. Or do you? have some other way that you think about that when you read the text. I think I kind of default to the former kind of example where it's just like, well, this is the, this is language that reflected time and culture, uh, concepts that they had to explain behavior. And, you know, much in the same way that, you know, you, you might kind of read creation stories in the context of ancient Near East right. uh, or, you know, conquest narratives in the context of Second Temple Judaism, looking back on history to try and make sense of, of their past. And are we still God's people, you know, helping talk about Old Testament Hebrew Bible history in a certain way. Same same kind of thing, right? And and that's kind of where I start, right? And then uh, the second thing is to say, how does this fit into if, if it's New Testament passages we're reading? How does this fit into kind of the the arc of the biblical narrative in terms of revealing how God is reconciling all things through Christ, right? Through through Jesus, and trying to see how that that kind of fits. And so on this textual question, actually, I, I, I recognize mm-hmm. I have another little note here that mm-hmm. would be a good time to bring it in. Here's another thing that Richard Beck wrote about this stuff. And I'm not sure I agree with this one. And I'm wondering what you think. Mm -hmm. He says that if we ignore the supernatural elements of the Bible, which I'm not, I'm not saying that we are doing that, especially if you have some other way, like, like he's offered of thinking about them. Right. But he thinks that if we do reduce them, we reduce Christianity to morality, like Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm not sure why, but that feels to me like a false binary. I don't know that that's the case. I feel like I'm having a hard time thinking about it, and I'm wondering if you can help me think about it. I think two thoughts come to mind. The first thing is that, well, if we reduce Christianity to the morality of Jesus, I'd be okay with that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. so if, if we... Which is not what Thomas Jefferson was doing, by the way. <laughs> right, right. He was not like really trying to follow Christ, and so he removed <laughs> yeah. the miracles. Right, right. He, he was not considering joining right. a monastery, you know... No. Right. So, I mean, that's I, I'm happy to kind of swallow that that medicine to say, let's get rid of the supernatural and reduce the Bible to morality for so long as it's the morality of Jesus. Right. That's a little bit cavalier and I don't mean it exactly that way, but uh, that's one thing that occurs. I think also, too, and I'm not uh, as familiar with with Beck's kind of idea here, but I'm just kind of riffing off of what you've said. If we look to the supernatural agency that's reported in the pages of, of Scripture and try and understand the reality of them uh, in a certain way, right? Kind of like the the demonic force example that you talked about in Nazi Germany, right? If we try and say, no, 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 there is something real here. Uh, and there's a reality to these, to the, to the spiritual supernatural realm that's talked about in the pages of, of biblical texts. It's just maybe it has a different type of being than kind of a, a simple, straightforward kind of, oh, there's a demon, there's a demon, there's an angel. I think that that's a, that's a line that's worth pursuing. I think what it does is it points out why we should still read the Bible and why we should still read uh, religious texts in any tradition, because there is something I mean, they have staying power through time 
because they bear witness to all sorts of things, including some deep, deep features of the human experience, right? right? So, but, but I would say, if you want to understand what's true about the world, you shouldn't just read the Bible. You shouldn't just yeah. read your, the text of your sacred tradition. And you uh, need to course. kind of... Beck wouldn't say put, that either, yeah. yeah. No, exactly. And, and yeah. so, so, but you shouldn't ignore them either, I guess, maybe right. is, is a way to say that. Well, so it actually brings me back to your <laughs> clarification earlier about, are we talking about a cause here right. or are we talking about a poetic way of understanding it? And yeah. I was just asking myself, at what point when I become a psychologist, <laughs> at what point would I say, you know what? I think we're done here. What you need is an exorcist. <laughs> I mean, it's a legit question. When would I ever do that? When would Beck ever do that with his clients? Right. right and that, that's, right. of course, he's not arguing for that kind of necessarily a view of demons. So I don't want to I'm not trying to straw man him. <laughs> right. But if I would never do that with a client, mm -hmm. basically, if I would never say, you know what? I don't think psychotherapy or psychiatry or medicine can help you. Yeah. You just got to pray the demon out. If I'd never do that with a client, why would I take a biblical story and say, no, in that case, it was just a demon? Okay, so so I don't want to I don't want to go to I don't want to jump ahead if you're not ready to go to the, the no. We're about part. to go morality. Cause, so cause if you want to bridge is, it, bridge this it. The, this is the great segue. Um, okay, perfect. In that, Dan, some therapists would. Right, I would not recommend people to those therapists. So, so and and maybe there are, so there are differences of opinion here. Well, I think some of my professors probably would say, no, I think this is a demon. At least one I get the sense of, yeah. of the six or seven that I've had in this <laughs> year or whatever. So I'm sure there are some good practicing therapists whose religious beliefs would do this. But I'm just saying, if I'm not one of those people, right. then I probably shouldn't read the Bible like that either. Like, what would it, what would be different about that? So, so here's a story that is just heartbreaking in its own way, but I, I say it because it illustrates kind of the, the, the harm side of things. And it comes from uh, a story in our church a couple of years ago. And every now and then, instead of a regular kind of sermon on a Sunday morning, we would have kind of a, we call them culture panels, where we'd have three or four people on stage kind of around a theme, people talking about things. And on one Sunday the theme of the culture panel was, uh, was mental, mental illness. And uh, there were two people on this panel who were therapists, counselors of, diff of different training and experience. Uh, and there were also two people from our, our church who uh, had, you know, different experiences with depression, uh, anxiety, and, and, and other things. And uh, it was just this really great kind of morning. And there was a participant who a uh, younger, younger female, maybe kind of mid to late twenties at the time. And she was talking about her own journey with depression and how as a teenager, she just really had no, nowhere to go. Didn't know what kind of therapeutic options were available to her kind of a, a highly churched culture where you just didn't talk about that kind of stuff. And so she finally, as a teenager, finally, finally, finally got up the courage to go visit their family doctor. Right. So she goes, goes to yeah. the family doctor, uh, person, you know, that, that you trust. And, and it's a lot of, it's just so courageous of her to kind of just confess to a, 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 a healthcare professional, what her experience has been. And so the way she told the story is that the doctor just took out a piece of paper, wrote something down, handed it to her. And it was uh, a, a particular, uh, was the, the reference to a particular Psalm and asked her if she had unconfessed sin in her life. Right. And, and so, and so I have pulled, I have thrown my head back 
<laughs> to the back of my chair and rolling my eyes. You can't see it though. <laughs> so that to me is when, when you said, you know, at, when, when you're wondering as a psychologist, at what point would you say, you know, what you need now is an exorcism. Uh, that to me is, is kind of analogous to this real world example of what happened to this, this, to this person who was crying out for help, real f-ing help, not someone writing something on a piece of paper and right. saying, here, here you go. Uh, and uh, was just, she was othered, shamed, and made to feel like she, she left that office feeling worse than she did when she walked in. It would have been better yeah. for her not to go at all. Right. And, and so, so um, if we're going to universalize this story into a claim, it, it's something like any time that you <laughs> neglect the due diligence of your discipline mm-hmm. and instead substitute a demonic or angelic explanation, you're basically leaving some potential help for other people off the table. And possibly make it possibly much, much worse. But at at minimum, you're like, I'm like not considering epilepsy. I'm not considering, you know, a personality disorder. Right. I'm just like, like, shouldn't you at least try all of those things first? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you might find that there's nothing that science knows about this Mm -hmm. thing that this person has. Mm -hmm. And perhaps, by the way, that's when things get labeled as demonic is when we've reached Mm -hmm. our limits Right. Which doesn't mean that they are. They might know more in 50 years. Right. right? But yeah, you're, you're kind of like you're shirking your human responsibility mm-hmm. to help people with what you whatever you do happen to know. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think in a lot of those kinds of, of situations, this is quite frankly where being Christian makes things worse. Right. Mm, because one if, of those. Yeah. It, like or or just the way in which religion primes a person in a certain way, if it's embedded within uh, a yeah. larger framework. I mean, I'm guessing that had she reported this physician, you know, he could have lost his license or been subject to some kind of, of suit. Right. Which. Mm. Um, well, why? Well, because that kind of behavior would I don't know this for sure, but I'm guessing it violates some kind of code of conduct. Right. In terms. Yeah, of what, it's it's got to be unethical. Yeah. So. So I have a little story that's under this moral thing. It is not nearly as bad as that. Mm -hmm. And I don't harbor ill will toward the person who did this, who who will remain nameless. But I was in a group of friends. This uh, is a safe safe place here, Dan. I was in a group of friends that were related through our church at the time. And I was talking with a couple of them. They were asking questions. Some of the psychedelics research was in the news, right? So the John Mm -hmm. Hopkins stuff about a year ago. Yeah. And so that was getting a bunch of headlines. And these Christian friends of mine uh, were kind of like talking about it. And they were like, hey, what do you think? And Hmm. I was sort of talking about some of the stuff that Sarah Lane Ritchie and I ended up talking about in our episode. But I was interested in the stuff. Right. And we were talking through it. And this person came over and they said, guys, I'm just feeling kind of like a dark spirit around this. Mm -hmm. And and we talked about this, by the way, afterwards. Mm -hmm. And it's cool. But I felt like that was a kind of a spiritual bullying Yeah, that actually there were some adult Christians mm-hmm. who had read some research mm-hmm. who were having a conversation yeah. about psychedelic drugs and what, if any, relationship that had to faith and people's spiritual yeah. experiences. Yeah. And this person, I think, had for understandable reasons, some negative yeah. connotations to drug use or right. I don't know what was going on in their mind. Mm-hmm. But. It's, that plant, felt it's, like, it's plant-based medicine. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, and I don't want to and I don't want to downplay the fact that uh psychedelics can be quite dangerous yeah. and can totally fuck you up. But I just felt like the use of that 
I'm feeling a dark, there's mm-hmm. like a dark feeling about this. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, so like we're like letting Satan in mm-hmm. because we're talking about mushrooms. Like, you know, and it, and it, yeah. it carries with it a kind of a end of the conversation right. move. Right. And so we stopped, but it was awkward. And it was like, why, you know, yeah. like, and, and the group of us knew each other well enough that we could have just had a conversation about it. Yeah. Like, oh, like, why are you guys interested in this? Doesn't, aren't mm-hmm. you afraid of the dangers? Yeah. Great. Great question. Let's talk about it. You know? So, so what I hear when I hear that story though, is that for this individual, this area, this, this type of conversation is just too far outside of their own frame of Christian experience for them mm-hmm. to feel comfortable. Right. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, in different kind of ways, those of us who are, in different contexts where we are presenting, you know, ways of thinking about God and the good life that are different from kind of maybe yes. a, a more traditional kind of evangelical box uh, that we're going to encounter that those kind of contexts where people in our, in our circle will experience a little bit of discomfort. Right. And so but we're, we're all the way back full circle to the intro black metal music that I <laughs> composed because yeah. there are all kinds of those. Yeah. In fact, I was just listening to, uh, one of my favorite podcasts is called Labeled, and it mm. is like the story of Tooth and Nail Records, oh, which yeah. is this massive, you know, indie Christian mm-hmm. rock label. Yeah. Yeah. And they're talking about these Norwegian metal bands <laughs> and how, you know, even in their childhood, you know, their pastor would be like, that that is evil music. Like, mm-hmm. and they would encounter the aesthetics of it. And if it's outside what they think sacred music is, yeah. they don't care that the lyrics are literally like, Glory to God, mm-hmm. Christ is risen because it's blah, and it's fast yeah. and it's and it's purposefully yeah. mm-hmm. you know dissonant, right? It's it must be demonic, right? Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there's and of course that's that's kind of silly, but but those experiences were very were very real yeah. for those people who walked in that club and thought, oh my gosh, Satan is in here mm-hmm. and had no idea that like yeah. no, literally it's like Christians singing about their faith, right? So <laughs> yeah. you, that and stuff so, is so, pretty fungible, is what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of um, a way of kind of navigating that that experience. I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I agree that there is kind of a there can be kind of a, a spiritual bullying kind of card that's played to say, oh, I'm, I'm my my spiritual spidey sense is tingling. And so we got to pay attention to that because you don't want to, you know, get fucked up in a certain way. But at the same time, I, I think a more charitable kind of interpretation sometimes is that it's just people are just not used to thinking along these lines. And oh, I, sure. I, I've yeah. encountered that. I've enc- I'm not saying you weren't being charitable, but. But th- but maybe what you're saying is my story does not quite hit the same level of morally problematic stuff as what you're trying to get at here. Well, but, but, I, but I, well, it, it kind of depends. Like it, it, here's kind of the way in which it connects. I think uh, another kind of example of this kind of dissonance is, is, you know, people who are very committed to a certain kind of simplistic reading of the Bible been based on their understanding of the Bible. And then when they're presented with, different ways in the Christian tradition that people have read biblical texts and understanding kind of what uh, inspiration means other than just kind of a, a, a strict kind of inerrantist kind of view for, for some hearing those, those options for the first time makes them feel very uncomfortable. And there's, there's a sense in which, no, this is, this is not just mistaken. It's evil, right. To kind of think about the Bible and the biblical text in any other way than, than a strict kind of high kind of inerrantist view. And it's the, it's a, a similar similar kind of thing. And if people just double down, right, and are unable to to just have any kind of productive, real conversation about, well, why would, why, you know, tell me more about this. Why are you thinking the way you are? If, if they double down and amp up the stakes, then I think it can, it can really be bad. 
let me play demon's advocate again here on this topic <laughs> of being opposed morally. Yeah. Assuming demons exist, mm -hmm. the best thing you could do would be to accurately identify when a demon is involved and help the person in whatever way is appropriate for getting rid of demons. So on that assumption, morally, if you're not identifying it as a demon, if you're not recommending an exorcism, you're actually doing them a moral disservice. Now, of mm -hmm. course, this is circular uh, mm -hmm. on either side of that, right? So, right. but how do you respond to that? That yeah, argument? I mean, I mean, um, I think there's there's a couple of moves there. Uh, one was, you know, if they exist, then there's an assumption about what would be the most uh, the best kind of response in engaging the demonic, right? And so, suppose demons exist uh, and they're all over doing doing stuff. What is what is the evidence about human behavior suggest is going to help people? Is it really getting people in basements to kind of pray through the night to kind of bind uh, Satan's armies? Uh, or is it to punch that demon in the throat by going out and helping people on the streets or by mm -hmm. going out yeah. and, and uh, uh, providing kind of tangible help for people who are in or need and psychiatric evaluations. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. And medicine you know, so, maybe. So right. it's My not necessarily point. clear that exorcism is the answer just because that's the thing right. we think of yeah. with demons. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and so I guess the question goes back to, you know, what, what is, what's really going to help if, if there's a problem to be solved, can we agree what the problem is and can we, let the evidence kind of guide what we think is going to be the, the solution. And here's kind of the super interesting but depressing literature from psychology that tells us how biased we are. And and we we appeal to anecdotes all the time, and we mistake anecdotes as evidence. And we say, well, what about so and so? They prayed and and it and they got better, or they prayed and the blues went away, or they prayed and someone provided a meal, or they prayed and the missing link is demonstrating that it was the prayer that that would that you know moved heaven and earth. Literally. Yeah, I just got forwarded a video about a guy who took hydrochloroquine at the beginning of his COVID mm -hmm. diagnosis and he got better. Yeah. The yeah. thing is, a lot of people <laughs> get better, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. they don't all end. It's like 19% yeah. go on respirators or something like that. Yeah. So I'm not wading into that. It is yeah. possible. Why as do you hate America, I'm, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> it's possible as far as I understand that like hydrochloroquine as a malaria might be good in the early stages, but it's not good. When people have advanced COVID, I don't know. I haven't looked at the research. I've heard someone suggest that. I'm not trying to make a political point. Right. The point was just I thought of it when I watched this video of like, yeah. okay, but you're one guy. Like, yeah. well, and, I, I and need so, a, I need a, a study of 500 of you, right. and you know, then oh wow, okay, so this is this has so, like a 25 percent effectiveness I, or whatever. You know, I read one kind of survey piece on the literature, and my understanding is that on that particular drug, there were two studies initially that they, they weren't double blind studies and they weren't randomized control groups right. and they, and they were very small and, but they seemed to indicate that there was possibly some therapeutic benefits of hydroxychloroquine, if I'm saying it correctly. Yeah. Some, whatever it's called. Yeah. yeah. And so that was enough to kind of push the scientific community to do a whole bunch of, of yeah, do um, some more studies, actual, right. real, real actual studies to say, is there anything here? And every single one of the legitimate studies has shown that there's no discernible benefit and possibly mm -hmm. some harms. Right. So, yeah. So that's, you know, that seems to be what we know. Kind right? of the best data we have right now. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Other than, you know, what some, what happened to some person. Right. So I don't want to finish on COVID here. <laughs> um, anything else to say on uh, being opposed morally, like, like the way that the, a common belief in demons leads to morally, morally bad outcomes? Well, I just, I just think maybe let me 
say this on on this kind of middle way that we're that we're kind of trying to chart here like if you think the most effective thing for you to do is to pray and engage the supernatural magic in 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 ways that you think are going to be the 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 best and most effective way well then it kind of makes sense that that's what you do if if you're kind of bringing that kind of framework to your experience then you know, there, there are praiseworthy elements there where you think that, well, this is what you think is the best thing to do. And you're doing it because you, you're a good person in that way. So I, I want to kind of honor that. Right. And, and I kind of kind of people can that. people can believe that they are being self-sacrificial right. and believe that they are helping. Right. 100%. They're not trying to not help. Right. And so there's there's a, a, a good intention there, I think, in, in what uh, people are doing when they're kind of buying into a, a highly active kind of supernatural realm. But I think for me, the question to ask, and this is, it should always be kind of an open question and, and to answer it correctly, you want to kind of answer it in community. And you also want to look to how we see the person of Jesus kind of manifested, but, but what is really going to help, right? What are the tools that we have available to us uh, to, to, to help solve the problems that we're trying to solve? And, and I would just say that when I see, you know, Jesus preaching the gospel, right, and announcing that the time of the kingdom has come, uh, he is saying that it me that the good news is going to be good news for uh, the poor, for the captives, for the oppressed, uh, for the sick. And he's talking about actually helping the poor and the oppressed and the captives and the sick uh, in ways that they would receive as good news, right? And so, Ask yourself if you're wanting to pray for the poor or if you're wanting to help the marginalized, if that's part of what it means to be Christian and to have a Christian calling, then what is going to help? And so it's not an either or, I guess, uh, though for some people it can be, but acting in ways that, you know, are evidence-based, that kind of fit with other things that we know about the world, other tools that we've been given, uh, and in ways that actually land uh, and are received as as helpful is is kind of just a a possible kind of control for some of the the excesses on the supernatural agency side. There's like an internal morality question as well, like in, in terms of like the moral quality of the person doing the choosing has moral outcomes. And so Mm -hmm. what that makes me think of is if you are convinced by the bulk of the psychological literature that people are inherently biased, Mm -hmm. that we have all these cognitive shortcuts Mm -hmm. that we will grab on to information that confirms our already existing belief before Mm -hmm. we will seek out disconfirming information. Mm -hmm. And if you combine that with the fact that whatever is going on in demons and angels, <laughs> if, it, if you accept that it would be very difficult to know that for sure, mm-hmm. you put those two together mm-hmm. and what you get is the type of person who immediately jumps to, well, there's a demon controlling her, Yeah, is the kind of person who's not self-reflective yeah. and is therefore more likely to be injurious towards others, to abuse spiritual authority, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, like. Like how many pastors who jump immediately to there's a there's a demonic spirit in your daughter. She's being whatever. She's being rebellious. You have sin in your life. Yeah. How many of those pastors (laughs) are not spiritually abusive? Mm -hmm. You know, I bet the number is pretty low. So it's it's, so what you're describing here, though, is a research project because you're making, you know, I mean, that that, that's testable. Right. Right. Oh, that's a good idea. It was Oof. yours. It was your idea, man. Uh, anybody, feel free to do that. <laughs> I, I don't know if I if it's too or too late for me to pivot. 
Um, <laughs> all right, Myron. Well, this was awesome. I'm, you're going to get your uh, you're going to get your theme music here to go oh, out because oh, we've realized it. that it's just our aesthetic hangups that make us think that black <laughs> metal is demonic. Um, uh, but thank you so much, man, for this. This was great. I really enjoyed it. Really appreciate it a lot. I just had to play the whole thing in its entirety. It's only like 50 seconds. I hope that that wasn't too annoying and probably lost some of you and are not listening now to the outro as a result. But you know what? That is the price of true artistry. So in the show notes today, we've got uh, links to two of Richard Beck's books, Reviving Old Scratch and The Slavery of Death, both of which I believe came up in our conversation. I know The Slavery of Death did. And uh, also a link to that article about culture-bound syndromes, in case you are interested in that. I'm also going to have a link to Myron's faculty page, just in case you want to get in touch with him or see the stuff that he's published on, etc. Again, you could become a patron. Starts at $5 a month. You get those two exclusive episodes per month. Also access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only and is now a thriving community of about 500 people on their sharing tips, resources, emotional support. And now Fridays are given over to memes. Keep them all in one place for laughter and uh, comfort and making sense of the world. Um, Anyway, so, you know, consider it. No pressure. You're not going to hurt my feelings if you don't become a patron, but you might really enjoy it. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. Thank you to Josh Gilbert, who edited my conversation with Myron and turned it around right quick for me because I wanted to get this particular episode out as soon as possible. And uh, he's available for podcast work. His email is in the show notes. You can also follow me on Instagram. There's a link to that in the show notes if you want to see photos of my son Soren, which is almost exclusively what I post about. Okay, we'll see you guys next week.